Fincher is, by his very nature, an obsessive filmmaker. Yes. Um, he is detail-oriented. He is incredibly specific. Um, you get the feeling that there is nothing within the frame that he hasn't considered, tinkered with, moved, rethought. Like, he is that kind of filmmaker anyway. The notion of him making a movie about the Zodiac Killer at all is terrifying because you know it's going to have that real stink of madness you know that it's going to get into that obsessive corner of it um what i was fascinated by is the idea that he used gray smith's book as the entrance point yes i'd read that book i'd read that book 15 20 years before that and you know that's that book is one of those uh sort of any young guy that goes through his period where he learns about American serial killers, that book is going to end up on his shelf. It is one of the linchpin pieces of literature about sort of serial killer culture in this country. And I think one of the reasons that book resonates is because the book stinks of madness. You can tell <laughs> when you read it that Graysmith lost his mind to this thing, that he got so pulled into it. So it was exciting just to hear that this thing was coming. And then on top of it, it being right at the moment where sort of digital filmmaking really pushed into that beautiful side of digital filmmaking. Because I think every filmmaker that had used it before that, used it for the immediacy and the raw quality and that, you know, it's handheld and it's very, and it, Michael Mann is a great example of a filmmaker who didn't run from the fact that it looked like video. Yes. He didn't care. Collateral very much looks like video. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous video. Gorgeous it's video. Beautiful high def. I think it's one of the first times I ever saw Los Angeles look like Los Angeles at night because of the way he photographed it. But it's video. Whereas I think Zodiac screams 70s film aesthetic. Yes. And to watch him take the digital tools and bend them to that and know how much he had to do to get them there because they really weren't technically ready yet. I think he basically decided, oh, no, they're ready because I need them to be ready. <laughs> and then he just forced it to work. And that film is gorgeous just on a technical level. I could look at Zodiac all day long and just marvel at it. That doesn't even begin to get into the performances. It doesn't even begin to get into the script by Vanderbilt, which is a remarkable piece of true life writing. The fealty they pay to the reality of what happened the careful nature of every detail that is included in the film is breathtaking. And it's the only way you can do a good Zodiac movie. You know, he even makes reference to the fact in the film that Dirty Harry basically ate his lunch as far as getting <laughs> the Zodiac on screen early. Yes. Um, you know, Zodiac's out there running around and you got Dirty Harry blowing him away on screen, <laughs> which is fucking bananas. Can it you is... imagine the balls it took to do that as it's... filmmakers? wild it is you, wild. you had to be really brave to think yeah we can shoot in san francisco and nothing's gonna happen to us hats off gentlemen you pulled it off but that's crazy <laughs> um so like when you think of all the all the sort of precursors and all the stuff that have been done and all the and serial killer culture in general i think by the time he got to it had already been fully digested by movies mm. everything from silence of the lambs to seven to all the cheap ripoffs of those two films it it really had been well-tilled soil it didn't feel like there could be something new to say about it until we saw how he did it and it is truly the most david fincher 
of all of David Fincher's movies. <laughs> I think it is him on a plate. Um, his childhood is wrapped up in this film. If you want to know what it felt like when David was growing up, this is it. He wanted to capture that. On, he did. That's his childhood. That's the area where he lived during this period of time. Um, and I think there is a... It's weird. I've heard people talk about the fact that they're not sure emotionally what the ride of this film is, or that it's not a film that emotionally lands the same way conventional films do. Um, I think part of its strength is that the film absolutely refuses to do the things we expect a film to do. Um, there's a version of this movie where Paul Avery is the hero. Mm -hmm. where Paul Avery and Mark Ruffalo team up and they figure it out. And they get the ser and they get the serial killer, and then there's a big scene at the end where Paul Avery puts his drink down, and he's better now. No, not that at all. And I love that Avery, when he leaves the film, it's this inconsequential moment between the two of them where you see just how broken he is by it. Like it just stepped on him and then kept moving. And I love that the movie is relentless in the fact that it doesn't care about giving you conventional endings to things. Even I think the very ending of the film. As much as it tries to put a little bit of a button on it, it's it's not the safe button that the studio would want on a movie like this. Uh, it is a movie that resolutely keeps you off balance from opening to ending and by design. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation to David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Grayson's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was online movie writing veteran Moriarty at Ain't It Cool, the founder of HitFix, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McWeeny. Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with an exclusive weekly Rum and Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reed, are in the description of this podcast or at oneheatminute.com. Honking their horns to notify me of a loose tire like model citizens are painter, director, Actress in films like Say Anything, Four Rooms, River's Edge, and most importantly, Zodiac, Ioni Sky. Well, I mean, naturally, I was thrilled to work with David Fincher because at that point, um, you know, obviously there was Fight Club and there were, you know, he'd done so many things already. Um, and it was that, it was sort of my favorite scenario where. I can't remember if it was an offer or an audition, but he has that like high level of talent and warmth and also not um, obnoxious Hollywood, you know, baloney at the same time. Award-winning actor on stage and screen, a man who delivers the most consistently involving and affecting characters to a myriad of films and TV, including Fargo, the Trial of the Chicago 7, Gothica, The Drew Carey Show, Shutter Island, The Invitation, The Founder, to name a very, very small few. But finally and most importantly, this incredible man is the linchpin 
forgive the pun, of this film Zodiac, the incredible John Carroll Lynch. They get, you know, they gave the Academy Award for Best Picture to Around the World in 80 Days. Yes. With David Niven and Shirley MacLaine as a, as I believe Shirley MacLaine plays an Indian princess. Yes. An East Indian princess in that. So it's not great. Uh, and uh, and when it when you when you go back and look at it, certainly it was an astounding production. Yes. And uh, and all of the assets of the production are amazing. But if you were if you were to four year late four years later, um, in film school, they're not going to run around the world in eighty days for their students. No. They're going to run something else. But they will run. It's a mad 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 world. Yes. Because Stanley Kramer made it. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, they'll <laughs> they'll run that because that's because because that has an enduring fingerprint on the work. Award-winning author, film critic, and host of the terrific and insightful Watch with Jen podcast, my dear friend, Jen Johans. I do, but first, something in an earlier episode that you talked with uh, Jordan Harper. Hello, Jordan, about <laughs> what is what is it about this movie that compels us like why do we like to watch it over and over again yes or what is it that's so you know he's like it's not very satisfying or like i don't know that i get anything of it yes and it actually inspired a lot of thought i thought well geez jordan you're right like what's wrong with me why do i why do i love this movie and returning, writer and producer of The Post and Longshot, and one of the writers behind the second season of David Finch's Mindhunter, Liz Hanna. Award-winning screenwriter and auteurist podcasting mastermind, Lee Zachariah. Senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone, and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. Writer and film and book critic, Bill Ryan. This is the 10th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Taurus, Part 2. In this scene we see a pivot point in the American experiment. A gesture of goodwill disguises malicious intent. Every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This episode challenges the concept of American hospitality. It registers a shift in perception that resonates throughout America and the world. The once unassuming, plain-looking white male, aged between 25 and 35, is now the default description for the most effective individuals in our society. Serial killers. So today's movie-inspired thematic title is... Breakdown. Before we dive into the scene, here's Ioni Sky's first-hand experience of making Zodiac and how this scene came together from an acting and technical standpoint. And then we're going to hear from Liz Hanna, writer on the second series of Mindhunter, about the kind of experience that David Fincher Productions create. Just the atmosphere even around the audition, I think it was an audition. Um, it, it just felt like good. It felt like high level, but not, you know, full of yourself or awkward or, um, you know, kind of some things can throw you off and make you feel insecure or even like, People are treating you like a kid because they're the suits or they're the people in power or something, you know, but, and as I, I mean, I know him a little bit now at this point in my life and I'm very, like, very impressed with him as a person as well. So that was exciting. And then we shot 
in Northern California and I went out on my own to shoot and we shot, um, you know, the DP who passed away is like incredible. And I had heard already that he did a ton of takes. So I was prepared. And also I'd heard that he was great with everybody, but he and Jake Gyllenhaal were sort of not meshing. And I knew Robert Downey in my life, but I didn't have any scenes with him. And uh, yeah, I was just excited, like, you know, Chloe Sevigny I was friendly with. And I was excited that I was, you know, well, just so excited, like, to be a part of this. And we shot on the side of um, a road and at night. And it was kind of also cool because obviously it had a big budget and the level of excellence is like extremely high. But he, we just sat in a heated van in between takes and somebody, I don't remember who, the first AD or not the first AD, somebody in the mini crew, it was a very small crew for this scene sat and we looked like was watching a movie on a phone in between the takes and so it was sort of like again this kind of like not casual because it was like had an energy of like we're all doing something really you know trying our hardest but a no fuss you know not fussy which is interesting because it's more maybe even an Australian way of approaching things because America you know uh, America tends to it gets confused by like pomp and circumstance and I don't know just the whole Hollywood thing but so my point is just it felt kind of like bare bones but like super high excellent and we did the scene like tons of times but I didn't feel I don't know I didn't feel like used or abused or again like didn't feel insecure like I was so happy to step into the atmosphere and the atmosphere that's you know, you see when you're watching the film, you feel when you're on the set. Yes. Similar to like, I had a boyfriend who worked on a Terrence Malick movie. Um, and I went to, we were actually like breaking, we weren't even really together, but I was like, I'm going to Virginia to <laughs> um, see you. Cause I have to be on this set just to feel the vibe. Similarly to like someone like Terrence Malick, like, the atmosphere that a director can make it's almost like a host of a party like the, that also Terrence Malick had this atmosphere the minute you kind of came into that world and so I feel like David Fincher like and maybe I'm there to play into that atmosphere and someone else would come in and like being in a cult like someone would be <laughs> like that's weird but if you're in it you're like this is awesome but I still think anyone would be like, wow, this is amazing atmosphere. So anyway, it was, I completely trusted him. I was so happy. And it also shows you that like some actors are, you know, they're not good in some roles and really good in others. And for me, for sure, like working with someone like him, I don't know that someone could be very bad. I mean, some people will be better than others as actors, but if you're working with someone like that, it's hard to, not look great and it as an as a, as far as your role you know as far as your performance and that's of course like one part of it because he's also like you know that's the atmosphere part but then of course he's doing the like cinematography part but that also helped me not feel insecure because it was you know i, I he was also trying to just get the shot right mm. and the whole you know the you know the choreography of the shot or the lighting of the shot or the timing you know, of if you have a car pulling up and an actor coming out and where they are standing and where they're looking and 
you know, like it's so it makes you feel like it's not just your performance. I mean, I've definitely done things where I know it's my performance and I'm like, oh, God, I, like, I hope I get it. I'll try. But in this case, I feel, felt like it was just he was just getting it, doing it over and over so that everything kind of lined up where while he was watching, he was like, oh, that one had everything. That one had the performance. It had the lighting. It had the timing, you know, the whole thing. So I think, um, you, you know, if you're excited to just be a part of telling the story, you know, you're just a part of it, then it kind of can help with that insecurity. And you understand like why, why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, so I came on Mindhunter season two. They had done season one and there was like a pause. You know, there one of the things I love about Mindhunter and about how David works is he's very careful in terms of if we're not gonna just do this to do this. Like we're not gonna just do season two to do it. Um, and I had um, like just sold the post. I was in production on the post and I got a call that David wanted to meet with me to to potentially do an episode of Mindhunter season two. And I was like, fuck yeah. So I <laughs> went back to LA and I met with David and um, I, I really don't think we actually talked about the show. It was, it was much more kind of things that we were interested in. You know, we talked a little kind of blue sky of what the show was. I'd obviously seen season one and um, you know, got kind of just where this season two was going to go in terms of focus on Holt, but re and and kind of the story of his son and the crucifixion had originated, and you know, just really hit it off. And I, you know, I was like, I'll do anything to write five words in this show. Um, if you would like me to write you a check, I'm more than happy. <laughs> and so it started as that I was just going to do one episode, and then because the schedule sort of opened up um, after I finished the post, I ended up coming on for more. And then I ended up um, working with um, Courtney Miles, who was the head writer and Josh Donnan and David um, and really intensely on sort of the season. And we had amazing writers who had um, written episodes, Pamela Cedarquist, who wrote the Manson episode that I co-wrote um, is absolutely incredible. And, so we had like this amazing team of creative people and the only rule was for it to be as good as possible. That was it. Like that was the only rule was just like, let's make this as good and as like authentic and hard. You know, let's, if, if the, if what's on the page is the first option, that might be the right option, but let's try all of the hard ones. Let's try all of the other ones first. And um, David's attention to detail is something that I think, I hope, made me a better writer. Um, he's sort of, is like a heat-seeking missile for inauthenticity. And, and as a young writer, as a writer in general, you can get really, <laughs> you're like, well, it just sounds good. That's why. <laughs> and, um, you know, any time that that would be my answer, I was like, well, I'm going to be rewriting that. Um, <laughs> rightfully so. And I think, you know, and Jamie obviously, you know, has worked with David a bunch and, and on Zodiac. And um, I couldn't agree with him more that David is one of, if not the most collaborative people I've ever worked with. And that he really kind of presented to, to us, you know, the season was fairly broken in terms of this is where the story is going to start and it's where it's going to end. But there was a lot 
within there that was like color inside the lines, color outside the lines, like just kind of let's see where it goes. And like I had some sort of wacky ideas at, at certain points and he was like, well, try it, you know, and it was it was a lot sometimes trying it didn't work, but it was never a no. It was always yes. like, go see what happens. And that doesn't happen all the time, particularly in TV when you're shooting, you know, I mean, we were um, writing a lot up until production and through production and or Courtney was writing during production. And um, so it was really um, intense, but so fulfilling. And I mean, I was on that show for about two years, I think, from my first meeting until it premiered and by far the greatest two years of learning I could have gotten. Yeah, it's uh, that's the incredible thing about these things and these shows. And it's funny, there's a great interview very recently with Miss Ben Affleck and David Fincher around Mank. And um, I, I think when you said you're getting the feedback, you have to rewrite something because it sounds good. I mean, Fincher gave his his own father that feedback about <laughs> Mank. It's just like, this kind of is a bit flowery and it sucks. Can you rewrite it? And I'm like, yeah. wow, that's my kind of guy. That, that well, you level- know, it's... It's, it's what it is, is that I, I think with with anybody that you're working with, what you're what you're expecting is or hoping for, is there a mutual is there a mutual level of respect so that when things as they always do, like, you know, hit the wall, shit hits the wall, something you write isn't good. Somebody comes in with bad notes, like whatever it is, whatever hurdle you're going to have to cross or or hurdle you have to jump through this process is that you want to know that that person respects you and nothing that is coming is personal yes there's no note that's just because like well i don't like what you did or or whatever it is coming from a very authentic place of you know this just isn't working for this you know or this really is let's just make it better and i think knowing that I wasn't having to audition, that that David respected me and that I was just constantly trying to get better and make it better gave me the confidence to do that, I think, and to do it for everybody to on, on the show to do that. That sounds like such an awesome place to work. Like, I, I know that sounds stupid to say, but it's like, let's just make it so awesome. Like the, the, yeah. the only answer is make it the best and we'll all collab on it together and it will be as tip top as can be. And if if 10 out like nine out of 10 scenes are uh, are amazing and there's one that's not working we have to we have to blow that 10th scene up and fix it so that it it lives up to the standard and the rare thing is and this is the great thing about his work and and, and the thing that sometimes other works don't hold up to that i've watched mindhunter both seasons about five times <laughs> Amazing! It was you. It was, it was you who watched it. Well, oh, it was, uh, it's not just it's not just me. Uh, but but you know that you watch them, you can put them on, and they they do the same thing that Zodiac does, and many of Fincher's films do. You think that you can watch them while you're doing anything else, like oh the kids are asleep, I'm just going to mm-hmm. tidy up, I'll just, and then I'm sitting on the couch and nothing's getting done. But it's it's those things that literally every scene stands up. All the actors are giving incredible work all of the killers because you know the centerpiece of zodiac is this unfathomably brilliant scene with john carroll lynch and elias codius and 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 um uh, and mark ruffalo and of course anthony edwards but like you guys get to do that (laughs) 
every second episode basically it's just like this crazy thing and they all are incredible and they're all unique and the shooting style is great and you know and hearing about that collab and then also seeing some of the directors you know I'm, uh, as as an aussie seeing andrew dominic's name even before the show came out was like oh shit like my dreams are coming true fincher and someone like andrew dominic working together it's like it, it must have been it just sounds awesome it just sounds great it w- I think the other thing is, is that there was no ego. Like it wasn't like, I wasn't fighting for an idea or something because I wanted to be right. Mm. Um, and nobody was. There were, really was no ego involved in putting things on paper than, than putting them on screen. That was, that comes from this false sense of like, I have to be the one that's right or I have to be the one that gets the credit or, you know, whatever that is. I mean. For instance, in in the Manson scene, which I had the great fortune of being involved in, um, Pamela and myself and Courtney, I think, worked on that for a year. You know, I mean, that one scene from a number of reasons. And I think one of one of them is that we didn't even realize kind of in the crafting of it, or maybe they did and I just didn't catch on till later. Um, we really didn't realize like that was the linchpin thematically for Holt's character, that scene. You know, it was kind of like Manson was gonna be in the show. Manson was gonna be in this episode. Something had to happen in this scene that really kind of pushed Holt into a Holt's character into a different realm. Years. Right and wrong is a game. There are no rights and wrongs, only is. Whatever life is, it is. Right and wrong got nothing to do with it. So the murder of seven people just is? Well, it is, isn't it? (laughs) No one ever dies. No one ever lives. Those are two words in a leftover game. People did die, Charlie. You made sure of it. Everything is love, man. There's nothing that isn't love. Really? Nothing? How much more of this shit do you want to listen to? You need to walk on a different street, guy. Put your clothes on backwards and let everyone laugh at you. You're a coward, Charlie. A coward who takes no responsibility for his actions. (laughs) Yeah, you eat meat with your teeth, you kill things that are better than you, and then you say your children are killers. No, I'm saying you're a killer. I have killed no one. You ordered them to go to that house and slaughter everyone there. I did not direct anyone to do anything other than what they wanted to do. You didn't stop them either. I always let children go. If he falls, that is how he learns. You become strong by falling. You're not supposed to let children fall. You're supposed to guide them. Guide them into what? Guide them into what you've guided them into? You fucking midget. (laughs) This anger that you're feeling, Agent 10, this is just the anger that you got for you. Find someone else to put your cell phone. I'm tired of being your goat. I'm tired of being your reflection. You're not my reflection. I've always been yours. I've been in your cell since I was eight years old. I don't even have a name. I'm B33920. A bell rings, I get up. A bell rings, I go out. A bell rings, I do what that bell says. I'm Pavlov's dog, man. I'm anything you want me to be. But what you want is a fiend. Cause that's what you are. See, I never had any say in your world. You created it. How do you feel about those murders? That's what counts. Happened in your world, not in mine. What counts is that you ordered the deaths of seven people. Eight, if you count an unborn baby. And now you can reflect it back on me, and you can lock me up in your penitentiary, and you can say that your world's better. The prison's a frame of thought. We're all our own prison. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're each our own wardens. We do our own time. Prison's in your mind. Can't you see I'm free? You don't look so free to me, Charlie. You don't look free to me. You look like a composite of what someone told you you are. You live for other people's opinion. You got pain on your face. And you wonder if you look okay. That's it. Yeah. Amen. I like and, um... We, it, we, it, we couldn't crack it. You know, we just kind of like kept going back and forth. And, you know, there was like, a I think the scene that ended up being shot, I think was like 17 pages long. It had started much longer and it got shorter and it sort of like fluctuated kind of by whomever was taking the pass at that time. And again, the thing was like, there was, there was no ego of the three of us at any point in dealing with that. It was like, I'm tapping out now. <laughs> like I have run out of my ears. <laughs> so Courtney, if you could pick it up or Pamela, if you could pick it up, you know, and that is for me, my favorite way to work because I know I'm not the person that's going to have all of the right ideas all of the time. Yes. And if I believe that I am the person that has all of the right ideas all of the time, I will fail. Like yes. I just, I will fail and the project will fail. And so it really creates this amazing, it really is what you're saying, this amazing workplace where you can play and you can take the time to figure out what it is. And Andrew directed that episode and Andrew you know, came in with so much knowledge about Manson and about Tench and had so much history, like had, had really spent, immersed himself in them. And so he brought this whole other sort of layer to it that then just made everything kind of elevate to another level. So it, it really is like, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not waxing poetic here and just being like, you know, this was great and everybody should be, you know, it, it, I'm telling the truth. It was really like the best job ever. It was so much fun. <laughs> and, and I was writing about serial killers and really dark shit. So <laughs> that, that says a lot. It is, it is any job where you get to go and play in a sandbox with extremely smart, talented people who remove their ego from the situation, that's all you can want. And that that was what Mindhunter was. And and it was really, and frankly, the post was as well. Like I, I had gone from the post to that and it really fucked me forever. <laughs> and now let's get to the scene. The sweepy camera hovers over a desolate Californian night. An inky arrow of road, periodic streetlights create growing, glowing pools of ambience all the way to a far-off town. This is a great application of a digital establishing shot that has purpose. It shows the expanse, the lack of population density, something that's not possible today in the exact spot that this encounter was said to have happened. And it's also to show that this is a hunting ground.
An unnamed woman, played by the warm and intuitive Ioni Sky, glances in her rearview reflexively, for an aggressive honking horn captures her attention. The look of concern and confusion flutters through her belly lit eyes. She attempts to pull over with no thought that she's done anything wrong. Rather, that if this person's in such a hurry, she'll just get out of their way. Here's Jen Johans on female intuition and knowing right from this moment that something is wrong. But women know they're in danger. Female intuition is very real. We know when men mean us harm, and sure enough, this misogynistic killer murders the women, but seems to go a bit easier on the men because they live both times, or the first couple of killings. But then in that terrifying sequence with Ioni Skye, she doesn't get out of the vehicle initially it's like she even kind of knows something's off with this whole situation of you know being flagged to pull over on a deserted night <laughs> like that could have been my mom basically <laughs> like on the side of the road and she even knows but what i love and you kind of think that's dramatic license but it's used so effectively is that the baby cries when when like tension is raised did yes. you notice that yes. it's so fabulous yes like but the baby as a as a dad of two little kids is if there is tension kids and can nervousness sense it. kids do sense it and some yeah. of the thing is like if you're stressed they are yes. way more stressed and and speaking of having two kids your first kid is usually like that, like less relaxed because you're less you're less relaxed. But then the second benefits from actually it's not your first rodeo. And so yeah. the second one is way more chill. And it's not, it's really got nothing to do with their personality. It's got way more to do with your level of comfort and relaxation and confidence. And so that's a really oh, that's brilliant. That's a really yeah. true to life <laughs> yes. feeling scene for that tiny detail as well. I know, and I love that because we do hear the crying first when he shows up to tighten the lug nuts, then when they're offered a ride, we hear a little bit more, and then when they're in the car with the man after he says that horrible line, like, when I get done, they don't need much help, which if we were watching a horror movie, we would hear like, dun, 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 but, you know, we hear the baby crying because it's more realistic, it's just brings us to a level of like, oh my god. And then she is hysterical, obviously, after what happens, because who wouldn't be? But she isn't able to be coherent until a woman shows up, like at all, we're kind of thinking. And so I loved that detail too. All done. Thank you. No problem. Have a good night. 
Here's some more from Ioni Sky about the scene and the film's reception. And the first of a couple of new bits of information about the making of Zodiac. Yes, exactly. Like when it first came out, I think you're right. It was kind of, um, it didn't blow up. Like, you know, I think when someone's that, you know, at that point, people loved his movies if you're, you know, a fan of his. So I guess the expectation might have been like really high or who knows, or it's just whatever. But about the time when people were starting to really grab onto it was around the time that people were saying to me, Oh my God, I loved you in Zodiac, that scene, that scene. So I've definitely lucked out getting such a, in, you know, the whole point of someone being, having a baby and pregnant, which I don't know, even if you don't pick up that I was pregnant, I have a baby. And just that he, what he says. And so I just think it's just, I lucked out with, it's just one of those memorable scenes, you know, where it's just so, it's such a horrible thought. You know, one of those thoughts of like, oh my God, someone's going to like throw a baby out a window or whatever, you know, you're just like, it's just like one of those terrible thoughts that you never want to have. But anyway, I just lucked out being in that scene. And yeah, and, and again, like I think he gives, he just, you're just sitting in this, sitting down into this like almost hard not to do a good performance. And we did shoot, he did shoot extra stuff in a studio like a couple weeks after um, to do a close up, which I think he used. Yeah, so I did do like that one night shoot on the highway and then one other little pickup thing. But yeah, that, that was, that's been really good. And I have had a career where I've had like, I was in Arrested Development and it's sort of a reoccurring. And I was just talking to my husband this morning about this kind of, I started doing more like leads as a, as a younger, you know, like in my teens and twenties. And I don't know, it's been kind of cool though, like just to do great smaller roles and things. I mean, I would like to do good, you know, big roles and good things, but yeah, it's, 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 I feel really, really happy to be in this super, super happy. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Must have been worse than I thought. I can give you a lift to a service station. Okay. I didn't know you had a baby. Oh, is that okay? The more the merrier. It's the smallest of details in the production of the scene. The arc of the wiper blades making two bubbles of clarity in the windscreen. The desert dust powdering the car. And that, paired with the headlamps, doesn't allow us or this woman to get a good look at this kind and helpful gentleman. Immediately, the slow acceleration kicks off the fixed wheel and the woman steps out of the car to inspect. As this helpful man reverses and returns, shrouded in silhouette, asking if she's okay, Sky reacts in a stroke of physical brilliance. 
and it's a bit of performance that's easily missed. As the question is asked, she immediately reaches for her stomach, checking her unborn baby. She then reaches for her chest, covering up. The reactions refuse to maintain the cordiality. This is reflexive primal fear, causing tremors through our muscles. It recalls Faye Dunaway's beautiful performance in Chinatown, as Jack Nicholson's JJ Giddis talks about meeting her father, and she immediately covers her bare breasts. The woman, played by Ernie Skye, accepts the ride, thinking of that unborn bump and the baby in her car. And a lot of people who I've spoken to on the show, and who I'm about to speak to, have talked about the line throwing the baby out the window as one of the most terrifying in cinema. I agree. But that, I didn't know you had a baby line, and the discomfort that immediately registers on this poor mother's face, is intense. Shouldn't smoke. It's bad habit. I think we just passed a filling station. It was closed. Do you always go around helping people in the night? When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. Now, here's a chat with David Fear about this Ioni Sky scene and how it grows on you. Then we move on to a chat with Bill Ryan, who makes an excellent point about the strange, implacable voice of the Zodiac, which leads into a bombshell from none other than John Carroll Lynch. I used to think that the, um, the woman in Modesto that's mm. played by Ioni Sky. I, I used to think that sequence as, as scary and, and like dread-filled as that feels, it always felt a little superfluous to me. And that's, you know, I don't, I mean, no disrespect to the actual people that that happened to, but the idea being that like, I think you're, it feels like you're just retreading. My initial thought was that you're retreading ground that you've already tread upon. And that um, it's not necessarily slowing the movie down, but I don't feel that it's pushing it forward either. And now that's the kind of pens down scene I watch. I know when I did my rewatch for this, I found myself very, very keyed in to everything that was happening in that sequence. And especially when he says, um, before I kill you, I'm going to throw the baby out the window. And the notion of everything just sort of stopping Yes. Like not quite going silent, but almost like it's almost like he's just speeding up the frames so that everything comes to this horrible nightmarish sensation. And then and then cutting to cutting to them finding her by the road and you eventually find out that that everyone involved is okay. And I I've, you know, I guess this is just part of maturity for lack of a better word how I, um, as a younger person, I might have felt like, oh, well, we didn't need to see that. Like, it almost, you know, you, you could have kept the dread going. You could have never answered that question. And now as I, as I get older, I find that seeing her pull the baby out of the brushes, I can breathe again. Yeah. Like, it's almost like my nightmare has now ended as yeah. opposed to just her nightmare ending as well. And um, 
and yeah, so now that's a sequence that I have a whole, I have a whole new level of respect for and admiration, and and I I love what Ioni Sky's doing in it. How it's very much a, an understated performance, um, and very much someone who is kind of slowly coming to the realization of what's happening, and yet it's not. Um, there's no sense of uh, of kind of horror pantomime going on or last girl pantomime i guess you call i don't know what you would call that but the idea suddenly being that you you have to communicate terror in a very broad almost silent movie way um and the people who can do that you know god bless them but she doesn't do that and the scene is so much more effective i think because of that yeah and you don't need to be a parent to to feel i mean what does she say when she brings the baby out that you're like you were hiding the baby and she goes i thought he might come back and yeah. then the notion of being that like he was he would toy with her and you know you're you're right it's like any any white male that approaches her suddenly becomes a threat and you know what thank god that's gone out of the culture thank god like after the after the zodiac thing white men all... were like oh no we learned our le- like, you know you guys yeah. are scared of us i mean look it's not it's not like a wild... causing some damage here so, <laughs> so we'll we'll stop not, time out not... It's not like thirty to forty white, you know, thirty to four year old uh, white white males have um, done anything else since then. You know, no. I mean, they're not no. the entire population of serial killers or anything. Uh, it's, as, a, it's, it's always the line where it's like the thing that scares, the thing that scares men the most is being humiliated, and the thing that scares women the most is being killed by men. <laughs> like, it, you know, it, it it hurts because it's true. It's funny because it's true. And the I knew sky scene, no one can know if that was him. And also he didn't kill them. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. No. But, because oh, she jumped out of the car, right? Yeah. Yeah. With a, so it with could have been baby. Him, with her baby. <laughs> and that, that line, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window, is one of the most bone chilling things I've ever heard in my life. But there's no way of knowing if that was him. So, and the movie knows that. And it's already set you up to think, well, was it him or just some other psychopath? Just yeah. some other psychopath. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. I can tell you categorically, there isn't a director I've ever worked with that will, that knows more about how you're responding than David Fincher does yeah. <laughs> about the audience. You know, I've directed uh, one film as of now and when I'm sitting in the, I was sitting in the edit, um, the thoughts came to me like, how long do I want the audience thinking about this? Like, where does, where do I need to transition the shot or the scene uh, or the, or the uh, transition? Where do I, where, where do I think I need to take the energy of the audience thinking this and move it into the next thought, into the next movement? Yes. And I'm four, right? <laughs> like as a director, I'm four. <laughs> now, David Fincher is not four. No. He's a master director. So if you are having those thoughts, it's because he put them in your head. Yes. Now, how did he do it? Well, I, I don't think this is out of school. I'm sure it's somewhere else in the commentary. Um, I came in for ADR 
and I did all the lines of the Zodiac. Yes. As did two people who played the physical Zodiac. Uh, Richmond Arquette. And, and um, Charles, Charles Fleischer. The four of us, all of us did the lines. And then um, he digitally mixed them. And he manipulates who you hear at what point in the film. And the thing that cements it, in my opinion, in your mind, in the audience's mind, and he, and what is the movie about? Well, the movie is about obsession. It's not about culmination. No. It's the most unsatisfying whodunit ever. Yes. Because he's not going to tell you. And um, it's really not about that. So he, he weaved it through. But the thing that, that he dropped in to make sure that by the end of the movie, when um, Gray Smith walks in and sees Arthur Lee Allen at the hardware store, and they recognize each other. Um, he has one phrase that's my clearly my voice, and it's in the scene with Ioni Sky, mm. and it's uh, he's going to drop the baby out the window. That is my voice without anybody else, as far as I can tell. And all the other voices are mixed in, everything from the phone call to, uh, you know, from the phone call to Melvin Belli all the way through everybody's everybody's represented all four voices are mixed off you'll hear one and not the other you'll have you know it's all manipulated yes and so yes you're right it's all him before i kill you i'm gonna throw your baby out the window from a car. I found her like this. What, what is it? Son, it'll be okay. Tried to kill me. My baby! Where's her baby? She didn't have one when I stopped. Where's your baby? And now the final word from one Lee Zachariah. You think about Ioni Sky's character who, who who jumps out of the moving car. You know, look at that scene. Look at the way we approach the scene in which she is rescued, or or or, or in which members of the public who are meant to be seen as a salvation in a situation like that, the way they approach. We start in the car of a woman we can't see. We see a truck pulled over with its headlights on this woman screaming, everyone looks guilty, everyone looks psychopathic. When this woman, who we know is a victim, is standing there screaming and upset, and we don't know what's happened to her baby, she's standing there, and she's looking at this woman, and you kind of know that, if there's any demographic breakdown you can have, it's that the Zodiac's probably not a woman. We know that much about her. <laughs> yes. We know that women are less likely to be 
a threat. You know, if you're in this woman's shoes, you're looking at the truck driver, you're looking at the, the woman, they're both pulled over, you're probably going to trust the woman more. This woman is shrouded in darkness and she's looking at her like, she almost looks like, you know, a, a predator ready to strike. She's like, what's wrong? She's bathed in darkness. She is terrifying. And this should be the moment at which you have the comfort. You've just had the encounter with Zodiac. And any normal film would stop down at that point. It would say, here comes the comfort. You've had the terror. Here's the comfort. That's the way films are structured. That is the way emotional journeys go. That is the way we watch films. That is not what Fincher does. The, the, the bit in the car is not terrifying compared to what happens next because once someone is caught you kind of relax because you know okay at least you know it's like Hitchcock said there's no terror in the bang only in the anticipation of it once she's caught we kind of know she's caught and so he flips it and so all the terror comes when she's being rescued when we know she's in the clear it's to cover that woman's face in darkness is it's terrifying that his mind goes there. That I'm talking about David Fincher here. <laughs> that he could think like that. That he sees the world that way, which is appropriate for this for this film. You know, Zodiac could be anyone. It's the whole point of, of, of the film is it could be anyone out there. It could be our protagonist. It could be the person on the street. It could be the person taking our water at a diner. This woman could be the Zodiac and even if she's not we're just as scared of her because of that possibility because of, it's all unknown it's um it's everywhere it, it's it's Zodiac is everywhere in this film that concludes Zodiac Chronicle Taurus Part 2 Episode 10 of 24 in our series on Zodiac be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes and if you can't get enough Unplug Zodiac sessions are going to be available exclusively from One Heat Minute Patreon, which is linked in our show notes. You can follow me, host Blake Howard, on Twitter and Instagram at One Blake Minute. You can also follow the show on Twitter at, at OHM Pods. That's everything under the One Heat Minute Productions banner. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers and pins were done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at at ai.me.me or via email at at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Now, this is normally where I do a sign-off. I say, until next time, goodbye. But, you know, you've heard from the man himself. You've heard from John Carroll Lynch. And, you know... I asked him a favour. Would he like to close our show from now on? What do you think he said? Good. Bye. <laughs>